Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. This month, for our Inside Special, we're talking about the legendary Porsche 917, or 917, depending on which part of the world you live in. My name's Paul Tarsi, and I'm joined, as usual, by Jim Roller uh, and, uh, and by Joe Bradley to look under a few rocks to discover some of the real stories behind this amazing car. And Joe and Jim talk to Kevin Jeanette about the iconic race car in the modern world as well, as, as well as looking at the, uh, the Can-Am car. Jim, did you ever see the 917 race? Uh, in 1970 at the Glen, it was part of that weekend when the 917 raced in the six hours on Saturday and then raced again in the Can-Am on, on Sunday. So I, in one weekend, I got to see it race twice, but that was the only time I ever saw the car actually in period, in competition, and certainly was fascinated and, and read all about it. And it was the stuff of boyhood dreams for me because this this was the ultimate spaceship. This was this was fast. <laughs> this was this was faster than um, it was mind boggling. Two hundred and and twenty five miles an hour. Nobody had heard of such a thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think we were all part of that. Joe, you're you're a mere stripling. I don't expect you ever saw it, but did did it have a did it have an effect on you, Joe? Paul, the the nine seventeen. I've got to say it. Um, it's got to be the movie Le Mans, which was part of the gestation period of falling in love with this sport. Um, the movie Le Mans brought home to me that there was something, some sort of motorsport outside of Formula One and sat there with our good friend John Eindhoff actually at movie club at school. And this movie was projected onto a big wall. And John and I, who weren't really mates because he was in the year below me, um, it had a massive effect. And, and the, the, the kind of the visual effect of the 917 on the Mulzahn, going through Mulzahn Corner, the footage from that film just sparked something that I have no words for. It kind of, you know, it's that the, the result of that is me being a complete and utter anorak and opened up a whole new world for me uh, with regards to endurance sports car racing. So the 917, to put it kind of in a nutshell, was the seed that has grown to what and where I am now being you know, a a big fan, an aficionado of the sport. Um, It was just one of those iconic cars um, that became a big part of uh, me then researching the outside of, you know, Formula One. What's this? Where is this place? Le Mans. Oh, my goodness. You know, there's these sports cars, these powerful race cars that just so visceral and so visual to look at and you know and then in in the following years just just reading about and researching it and just you know just soaking in everything about the 917 um it's it's i suppose you know what paul i'm going to go as far as to say the 917 
I haven't thought about it this way until we've been talking this week about this car and about this era. But I would suggest that the 917 was maybe not the seed, but certainly one of the seeds that has grown into this passion that I have for motorsport. Well, I was one of those lucky people who stood in the rain at Brands Hatch to watch Pedro Rodriguez win uh-huh. when uh, he was served a stop-go penalty, as we would call it now, uh, and um, came out very, very much with the red mist, just as it was pouring with rain. And uh, you know that that really famous photograph of the two cars going around Druid's hairpin, um, both with the tail out. Um, I'm in the crowd right there um, as a uh, as a long haired. Um, Dedicated follower of fashion, but uh, that's <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> that's to say, you're a long-haired hippie freak. Yeah, no, I was much, I was much too, much too chic for that. But uh, as, as I say, that's that's another story for another day. <laughs> yeah. um, but we get ahead of ourselves, obviously, as we so often do. We're going to hop into the historic racing news time machine, as we always do, and we'll go back to. 1968, um, which is the beginning of this remarkable tale, when the FIA declared that for 68, the top capacity of sports prototypes was going to be reduced to three litres. Now, that was for several reasons. There was a thought about aligning sports car racing with Formula One. (laughs) We've heard that several times since, haven't we? Um, but but to align it with Formula One so the engine design would be interchangeable, the consequence of this might be, just might be, to attract more manufacturers into sports car racing. The American engine cars were becoming really pretty dominant. And the FIA, although purporting to be a world body, actually is a European body based in France. And that uh, they wanted to see... A, a much more European flavour to the World Sports Car Championship. And uh, that although this change was not wholly popular, the FIA was therefore going to be faced with some pretty poor grids for the 1969 season, that the manufacturers who were involved in Formula One were not interested. Uh, and it was it was looking pretty nasty. So Porsche had other ideas because there had been an exception to the sports prototype regulations since 1966, which allowed older cars like GT40s to race, providing that 50 examples had been built. So you could run a five litre car, providing 50 examples had been built. Now, suddenly they were faced with grids of half a dozen, 10 cars with a three litre limit. So they dropped that 50 to 25, and they said, fine, if you've, if you've got a five-litre car and 25 of them have been built, you can run in the World Championship. And that was going to allow GT40s, Lola T70s, those sorts of things, in with the FIA's view was that it was going to make up the numbers, that they would be at the back of the grid and the three litres would run away and hide, and that uh, there would be some, some racing all the way through the field. But Porsche had other ideas and that they outrageously, utterly outrageously, decided that they would build 25 pure 
out-and-out sport prototypes within the five-litre limit. In September, October, the, the regulations, uh, the new regulations said you, you have to build 50 cars, series sports cars, up to five litre. And only um, a few months later, they changed again and, um, and they reduced the number of cars to 25 only. And that was, that changed the situation and thinking in Porsche, we had some discussions and somebody could maybe can make 25 good or better sports cars, which, which will uh, be able to beat our three liter. Therefore, uh, then it was decided to, to be quite sure to be able to win Le Mans and the Manufacturers World Championship every year, of course. And that was the answer on the... Uh, to build 25 cars of... of uh, with, uh, with 25 engines, 25 12-cylinder, completely new engines, it was uh, a big challenge for, for Porsche, of course. Pierre asked me if I'm sure to design an engine, a completely new engine, uh, which you have, which uh, Porsche has to order 25 cars without any tests or any parts seen or tested before, that it will will work everything and uh, he said i my answer was yes i i i i can do the man you heard there was hans metzger he is the father of all things porsche and air-cooled engines he invented the 911 air-cooled six-cylinder boxer engine he was responsible for all the 917 development with the 12-cylinder and during his 30 years at the helm of that department for porsche he was responsible for not only the tag turbo formula one engine but also the indycar project engine so he's a man who knows about porsche engines the historic racing news radio show Although Porsche saw the changes as being fairly advantageous to them, as because they were they were known as being low capacity, small capacity race car builders, I and mean, that's what they'd done up until then. And that the the nine oh seven and and I suppose the nine oh eight designs fitted the FIA's ex- expectations for small capacity sports cars. Many people feel that Porsche had the inside track on that because um, Van Oostein, who was still within the racing program, um, was on the board that made that decision for the FIA. So (laughs) there were probably some conversations between he and Ferdinand Pieck, who was just coming to the forefront. And this whole project was how Ferdinand Pieck uh, and many of the Porsche engineers like Hans Metzger and Valentin Schaefer, they, this was the project that they cut their teeth on. And um, yeah, that's not true. They didn't cut their teeth on it. They'd already had those teeth sharp. This is where they proved <laughs> Very they were the men to beat. Right, right. And, and they, I mean, they created that original 
917 as a as a sort of bastard child of the of the 908, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. As Brian Redman tells us, the first iterations of the car uh, came together and people were skeptical. After Ford's win in 1966 and 7 with the big block Mark IIs and Mark IVs, the FIA and the CSI, the governing bodies of motorsport, were under tremendous pressure, you know, to reduce the size of the engines. And pressure would have been coming from Ferrari and from Porsche and from everybody else involved in European racing. They didn't have seven-litre engines. And so, using the, you know, the pretext that speed was too dangerous and too high, and therefore the power of the engines must be brought down, they instituted new rules which said that the limit for a prototype, and a prototype you may make one or maybe you make ten, it could be you know, any number, but the limit was three litres. But at the same time, to try and encourage manufacturers like Maserati, say, and Lamborghini, and Jaguar, and Aston Martin, who had road cars with big engines to come into racing, they said that if you make 50 cars, you can have five litres. Well, what happened then was nobody came. Already, the Ford, with the 289 uh, GT40, fitted those rules. They'd sold 50 cars, so they were the sport class. And Lola got it as well, although it was a very doubtful thing, because Lola used the T70, which had been a Can-Am car. And they said, OK, well, our T T70 Mark III fits these rules. It was a coupe. And so they got in. And so there were Lola and Ford only with five-litre engines. But because they didn't get enough people taking advantage of this, the CSI reduced the 50 limit to 25. And I think Porsche knew about this before the announcement was made. Hushka von Hanstein was on the committee, you know, who at that time, in 68, was the competition manager for Porsche. And as Porsche started building these 25 917s in 1968, you know, and so quickly amongst the drivers, we all knew about it. Nobody knew anything about the performance or what it was like to drive, but we're all like this because we knew they'd been built in a hurry. We knew that they were loosely based on the long tail 908. You know, the shape of the body, the, sh the, the chassis, the aluminum space frame chassis welded together. And we knew the engine, first of all, was going to be four and a half litre, 12 cylinders. So this using the same pistons and valves from the 908 to speed up the process. So one day I get a call from Weissach, Porsche's test grounds. Herr Redman, you will come and test the new 917. <laughs> Why do they want me? You know, they've got six German drivers within the striking distance of Stuttgart. Why do they want me in the north of England? But anyway, I, uh, I said, I'll call you back in 30 minutes. I have some important business arrangements and I'll see if I can change them. Please be sure to call us, Herr Redman. I said, I will. So I called Joseph, my co-driver in Switzerland. I said, Pete, here's Brian. Yes, Brian. I said, have you tested the new 917 yet? And there's a long silence. He says, no, no, Brian, he said, we let the others find out what breaks first. <laughs> so I couldn't go. And Kurt Ahrens tested at Wolfsburg, the Volkswagen test track, where he aquaplaned off the track in the rain, went under the barrier, it stuck under the barrier, broke in half across the cockpit, and he went down the track strapped in the back half. So the, the car itself um, was a, a development of that 908, 
it looks very much like the 908, but that original car was was built really as a as a lightweight sports racer, wasn't it? Oh, back then it was all about weight and horsepower. They didn't really know much about aerodynamics, Paul. And uh, I've been told by uh, people who are currently uh, restoring some of these cars and and really have inside knowledge of of what a 917 is like. When you take the chassis and you take the engine out of it and the all the suspension bits off of it, the tube frame chassis itself only weighed a hundred pounds. So oh, yeah, this thing was was any any wonder people thought it was was dangerous. Cars hadn't been going that fast. Two hundred miles an hour was still like for the for the airplanes. Mach one was you know that magic number. Yeah. Um, in, in the late 50s and early 60s, as they were doing the, the, the jet technology was coming to the forefront for racing. That magic number was 200 miles an hour. And for these drivers and for the engineers, as Vic Elford tells us, it was all new territory. Um, you know, up to 200 miles an hour, GT40s, I presume, had fairly good downforce, whether it's by luck or design, who knows? Same with 908s um, up to that speed. But then suddenly taking this, what was a massive step forward to about 225 miles an hour, uh, I presume air does different things at those speeds too. Uh, and nobody knew what it was. No, uh, aerodynamicists didn't really exist. Those who did exist designed aeroplanes, uh, not race cars. And so the, the world had to be turned upside down to make it stick down there instead of fly up there. And I guess it was just totally new, even the concept was new to everybody, even to a guy whose mental ability uh, was capable of absorbing that fact like Pierre. I suppose really, <laughs> just listening to that is amazing, but this was just such new territory. It's a bit like that when planes were breaking the sound barrier, they really did not know what was going to be the other side of it. And here we are talking about cars doing very close to 250 miles an hour down Mulsanne in, in those times. And it just was uncharted waters, wasn't it? Oh, it certainly was. And as we'll, we'll hear later, the car had absolutely no downforce on the back of the car. And through some testing, they found that out. And we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But you have to remember, folks, that when the 917 was being developed, there was a lot of stuff going on within Porsche. The 908 was also a very important car. The, the 908 Longtail had, had raced at Le Mans. It was a car that the drivers had become very comfortable with. It had become very reliable. The 908-2, the 908-3... Uh, were being developed around this time. The 9083 is the is the car that was built specifically to to race and win at Targa Florio and and the Nurburgring. So all of this development was going on at the same time. It was a monumental effort. Uh, I think the the other thing with that though, Jim, is that many other race car manufacturers would have given up on the 917. They'd have. They'd have created that that monster, which was the 1969 car, and said, no, this is just too dangerous. It's too much like hard work, and let's go back to the drawing board and create something else, but not Porsche. 
No, no, they didn't. They they stuck with it. And interesting, in 1969, they actually gave the drivers the choice of whether they wanted to drive the 908 at Le Mans or the 917. And Brian Redmond picked the 908, and Vic Alford, who had a special way of driving the 917, picked the long-tail 917. At Le Mans in 1969... Uh, we had the choice of a 917 again, you know, and Vic, who loved the idea that it was 20 miles an hour at least faster down the straight, you know, than anything else. He was determined to drive the 917, but Siffert and I tried the 917. In fact, I'd tested it at the, at the Le Mans test and found it singularly horrifying. Because on the straight, I don't know how fast it was going, probably 2.25 or something like that, but it was all over the road on the four-mile straight. It just wandered from one side to another like this. And when you arrived at the kink at the end of the straight, towards the end of the straight, you hoped you were on the left-hand side, you know, so you could make the right turn correctly. So anyway, we, we drove the car, Siffert drove it in official practice, and Porsche had brought a new long-tail 908 Spider you know, with a longer tail. And we both agreed, boy, that's the car, because by then, the 908 was very reliable. I liked it, actually, because it was so fast. Even though it was difficult to drive, it was 25 miles an hour quicker than anything else. And uh, that was the start, really, of the relationship between Pierre and me, because we both had the same sort of philosophy about racing, about especially Le Mans. We both wanted to win Le Mans. The last thing we wanted to do was get involved in racing at Le Mans. You know, think, people think Le Mans is a race. It is now, but it wasn't back in those days. It was who can go fastest, but it's not racing. And the great thing about the 917, that even the very first one, the undrivable one, it was 25 miles an hour quicker than anything else. So, I, I, you know, if I wanted to go past, I waited for the straight and then just drove by. And the following year was the same. You know, I was the first one to choose to drive the long tail, the white one that's in Steve McQueen's film. Uh, John Wire and Golf uh, decided they would like the short tails. Um, and Wire's argument was they're easier to drive, which they were. The drivers know them. Uh, my argument was the same as PX. Yeah, but you've got to, if you drive one of those, you've got to race. If I drive the long tail, which is still... 25 miles an hour quicker than the short tail 917s. I don't have to bother about racing. I just wait till the straight and drive by. And there were three such straights then. What made it so difficult was it was all so new. You know, up until that year, none of us, whatever we drove, had ever been over about 200 miles an hour. Nothing, you know, 908s, GT40s, um, big Lolas and things like that. Uh, Can-Am cars even over here weren't even that quick. None of us had ever been over 200 miles an hour. Suddenly this thing appeared and it was doing 225. Uh, but nobody knew anything about aerodynamics at that speed either. And so on the, on the Molzahn Strait, you know, there were the, the kink. I mean, there were no Mickey Mouse chicanes then. We would get to the kink. Uh, and there was no way you could even think about going through the kink flat out. So we had to lift off because the kink's limit was probably about 200 miles an hour. Uh, but you couldn't just lift off because if you did, the back of the car came up and started doing that and steering the front. 
because there was no downforce on the back, literally none. And so when you wanted to come off the throttle, you had to come off very, very gently so as you kept the car in its balanced state uh, and then go back to the brake or the throttle, whichever it was you wanted, but gently to keep the car in that state without upsetting it forward and back. So uh, the kink was ease off and then just gently ease back on again. Same was true at Molzan corner and everywhere else, but especially Molzan because that's where we were getting the quickest. However, such was PX's ability and the guys working for him. By the following year, 1970, with the first long tail, the first five litre long tail, I was going through the kink at night in the rain, flat out at about 245 miles an hour. One of the things that people always talk about is John Wolfe and his fatal crash at Le Mans, the first lap in 1969. And a lot of people use that as how dangerous the car was. And I don't think anybody is going to put their hand up and say the car wasn't dangerous because it was. But John Wolfe is always branded as this inexperienced rich kid who who went to Porsche and, and bought the first the first customer car and crashed it on the first lap at Le Mans and died. That's not strictly the whole story because Wolf was actually quite an accomplished sports car driver. Not at that level, I grant you that, but he was an accomplished sports car driver and in fact he had a Chevron B8 prior to the 917, which he put an ex Brabham Repco three litre Formula One engine in the back of. And I think if you can race that, you can race most things. But, but you know, I, I think he's been sort of branded a bit as, as this sort of no hoper who, who had more money than, than sense, but not strictly too true. But I think it, it went on to prove just how difficult that car was oh yes and i think the the thing that was the real head scratcher for everybody that was involved with the 917 program was how resistant to changing the car ferdinand pieck was this he solely believed in um power to weight and again we we spoke a, a, a little bit ago about how the aerodynamics of 200 miles an hour was, was, was brand new and Piet was resistant to the change. But the engineers at um, Porsche knew something needed to be done because Joe Siffert had at the time, again, when I, I spoke earlier about the 908 program going on and everything else, well, this is when the 917 PA was also being developed to, to race in the United States in the burgeoning Can-Am series. Mm. That car they found to be much more stable as a open top car than the coupe was uh, that was racing, you know, the car that, that that we all we all know and love so much. So they this is also along the time that John Wire Racing became involved with the Porsche factory in the program. Ferry Porsche insisted that there be some outside money come in to help out. And John Wire was able to bring the golf money, but he was also able to bring some engineering help 
which the engineers at Porsche were very happy about, not because they were going to, Wire was going to be able to find something they couldn't find, but because Wire was an outside entity, they could do the fix that Pieck wouldn't allow the Porsche engineers to do. Oh, right. okay. And this all, this all happened at a test in Austria. And Brian Redman was the man driving the car. Yeah, a couple of months after Austria, we go back to the Ostreichring for a test. Now, this is a Porsche test, but it's bringing in the John Wire team because John Wire and Gulf Oil are now going to be running the official Porsche 917 and 9083 effort in 1970. And here we are in about September or October of, of, ni- of 1969 to do the test. And there were two official drivers there, Kurt Ahrens and myself. Uh, there was a full complement of Porsche engineers and a support truck with all equipment in it. On the John Wire side, John Wire wasn't there. There was David York, his team manager, John Horseman, his engineer, and two mechanics. So a very small golf group. So Arnas and I go out all day. I think it was Friday. We go out, lap, we do one lap at a time. We come in, we change everything. We're changing ride heights, camber, towing, shock absorbers. Nothing made any difference. And at the end of the day, John Horseman said, look at this. And he said, on the nose of the car were a load of bugs. And on the tail, there were no more bugs till the very tip of the small tail, just the last half inch or so. And he said, it doesn't have any downforce on the back. And so he asked if he could borrow equipment, and that is aluminum sheet, rivets and drills, duct tape and some wood from Porsche, which he did. And then the Gulf, the two Gulf mechanics worked on it most of the night. So we go back to the track and now the valley in the car is across, straight across. And I was first out in it. And instead of doing one lap, I did 10 laps, you know. And I came in and John Horseman said, how is it? And I said, now, you know, now we have a race car. And during the day, we changed various other things, changed the tires, went to Firestone tires. And we gained, in the end, five seconds a lap. Isn't that unbelievable? You know, looking back at all of it and knowing that Ferdinand Pieck's obsession with lightweight and straight line speed that they he wouldn't allow his technicians his engineers to do anything i'm sure they knew what the problem was you know because siffert i don't i never spoke to siffert about it at all but he'd been driving the canon car you know in america in five or six races i said you know we never talked about for some reason i don't know why but i'm sure he would have said it's much more stable than the regular 917 long term so I'm pretty sure the engineers knew what was going on, but couldn't do anything, you know. But they were given the ideal excuse and opportunity when John Horseman added this deck to the tail of the 917. When we come to the Porsche 917 story, though, that it's not just an engineering story, is it? It's it's not just about breaking those barriers about the 240 miles an hour. It's not just about all the things that they did. There was an awful lot of corporate politics, family politics, uh, because obviously Pieck was uh, was part of the Porsche family. And that getting John Wire involved, as you say, Jim, is was was a, as much a political thing as 
it was something which uh, which was expedient. Well, as you well know, Paul, Wire's reputation was near spotless uh, after the success of the team with the Ford GT40s and, and that sort of stuff. But more importantly, he came with the Gulf money. And Ferdinand Pieck was spending money in the racing department like a drunken sailor. And <laughs> Ferry Porsche, who was Ferdinand Pieck's mom's brother, if I if I have that correct, I'm sure the, the, yeah, the fandom right. will correct me on Twitter if I'm wrong on that. But anyway, uh, Ferdinand Pieck's mom was a Porsche. And so this was all family-oriented. Ferdinand felt he was being stepped on a little bit by uh, the wire racing effort being brought in, but it proved to be a, a huge sea change in the way Porsche did business. And it changed the corporate culture because now Porsche had had learned that they would do things with corporate money like golf, um, much the way Formula One at the very same time was learning about cigarette sponsorship. Um, yeah. So was, was Porsche. And um, it really ended up causing some very interesting things because not only was there John Wire racing for the 1970 season, when they showed up at Daytona, there was this new thing called Porsche Salzburg. Well, guess where Ferdinand PX mom lived? Salzburg, <laughs> Austria. And yeah. for Brian Redman and Vic Alford, it was, uh, it was a very interesting time. 1970, the first really official race for the John Wire Porsche team was the Daytona 24 Hours at the beginning of February. And so we get there, and much to everyone's surprise, including John Wire, there is a team from Porsche Austria, Ferdinand PX's mother's team. <laughs> John Wire was very upset about this, I can tell you, because he never expected that there was going to be internal opposition from what was really a factory team. You know, another factory team. Well, anyway, off we go. I think it was primarily Ferry Porsche who was rapping him on the knuckles saying, for Christ's sake, stop spending my money like this. He was spending too much money on racing, for sure. I mean, everybody agrees on that. Uh, you know, Porsche was then a comparatively small company. But obviously, racing was part of their DNA even back then. Obviously, racing was necessary to continue because the only other company that could claim that was Ferrari, who, of course, didn't really make road cars, not the way Porsche was making them. And so, as I understood it, it was very Porsche who said, you've got to stop spending money like this. Let's find a real team that can do it, one that's already proven itself, as why I had with Jaguar and Aston Martin looking back at it and looking at who was around at that time I have to think uh, that Wire must have been the best the best candidate with the best uh, track record the best results the best organization uh, and so it was logical to do it knowing Pieck there was no way that Pieck was going to hand everything over lock stuck and barrel to somebody else he was going to maintain his control over racing even if it was under, under the table. Why I thought that he was going to be absolutely the factory team and that Pierre was just going to shovel everything in his direction, anything new, he'd get it. Uh, 
But as others have found out since, and uh, why I found at that point, you don't screw around with Piek. And Piek was determined, obviously, to keep uh, a hold on everything himself, which was why Porsche Austria was formed, uh, with his mum as the, as the owner. <laughs> but in fact, you know, it was, it was Piek's baby. And uh, why didn't ask me to drive for him? He didn't even know me. I guess I'm, whether he would have done that, I don't know, but, but he didn't and I, because I'd never even met him. But Piek and I got on very well together. So, so I was, was the sort of natural to go with uh, Piek to Porsche Austria. And he and I really, we really hit it off together um, with our philosophy of, of, of doing things. And almost every, every time there was something new, uh, I got it first, at least to try it. In 1970 at Le Mans, John Wire had turned down the offer of the new aerodynamic long-tail Porsches, which were going to be 20 miles an hour faster down the Molson Strait, but it was mainly because those cars would have been supplied by Porsche and prepared by Porsche, and he preferred to race with cars that he had prepared. I mean, that's, that's all it was. He knew that the long tail was probably faster, but felt that he would rather trust his own preparation rather than that of Porsche. So the race came and uh, it was a miserable, wet race. The long tail did have some advantage, but not a huge one. And uh, I, I remember very well the bloody rain, you know, going down the North Sand and you're going 180 or 90 miles an hour and the rear tyres hit a patch of water. You go, oh, you can't see anything. You know? oh, and then, whoop, whoop, as the rear wheels break loose. But anyway, you know, sometime early in the morning, we're leading by a long way, uh, at least four laps. It might have been five. And, uh, and Siffert, of course, I mean, if you had to fault Joe, who was a wonderful guy and a wonderful driver, brilliant. If you had to fault him at all, it was that he only had one speed, you know, flat out. So the fact that it was a 24-hour race didn't make any difference to Joe. It was flat out all the time. And ultimately, we've got this huge lead. He comes out of the chicane. And there were two or three slower cars, you know, going up the road. And he dives off to the right, right very close to the pit wall. And right in front of the Porsche pit, missed a gear, missed fourth gear. And we all heard the engine go, uh, yeah. And those engines, the 917 engines, would go to 8,000 RPM, maybe 82, for 40 hours without a problem. You go to 84, dead. They broke the valve gear. It was very easy to miss a gear because of the synchromesh gearbox. You know, and this was done because Porsche, you know, as they do today, uh, their philosophy was one of racing items that were going to be in the future used in road cars. And so that's why they use the Porsche uh, synchromesh gearbox. It's much slower than a racing gearbox. I mean, on a normal two-mile circuit, the time that you have to take with the synchromesh gearbox is probably a second a lap, you know, significant amount. And on a track like Le Mans, more than second and a half a lap, just because you have to be careful with the synchromesh. And also at Le Mans, the problem was that although originally the 917 had a five-speed gearbox, by 1970 it had a four-speed gearbox. And so the problem at Le Mans was that you couldn't gap the ratios correctly. It was impossible because of the high top speed. So you have a very high top gear. You have to have quite a low first gear to get out of the pits. 
and the two in between second and third just had to be spaced somewhere about you know wherever they could but the result was a big gap between the ratios it was a big gap from second to third and quite a big one from third to fourth which was top gear and so as the race goes on the synchromesh rings are wearing and the gear change is becoming more and more difficult so it was uh, I didn't I didn't I didn't say anything to Sifford you know what can you say everybody makes mistakes it just happened that that was a you know a big race that would have been nice to win when the uh, when the blue and orange cars arrived at Daytona and that they were expecting to be uh, the factory team to all intents and purposes had they got no idea that Porsche Salzburg were going to be going to be there according to history no it was a wow. total surprise wow that must have been quite something to uh, to see and to stomach. And um, can you can you imagine the glare that? Um, <laughs> what was it called? John Death Wire. Ray, John that? Wire was famous for his for his glare. You know, if he was angry with a driver, he didn't need to talk to him. He didn't need to yell at him. He just gave him the look. Yeah. Now, can you yeah. imagine the look that Ferdinand Piet got when he strolled through the paddock at Daytona? You know, it's it's something which you couldn't put in a film. You couldn't you couldn't have Steve McQueen doing that or anything because it just doesn't doesn't face up to it, does it? It's ridiculous that uh, just to arrive and say yes, well, we can do this because we're Porsche. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and then the and then the irony of of Siffy, uh, uh, Siffert missing the gear, and then the Salzburg car going on to uh, claim the victory. That's uh, just, it's just amazing, just absolutely amazing. Probably the the halcyon years of the of the nine one seven in international racing was nineteen seventy one because you know, that's that's when they were sweeping all before them and that's that's when really the reputation was made. But Norbert Singer was continuing to develop the car still further. Yes, he was. Um, Norbert came on the scene, uh, the famous Norbert Singer, the man who's responsible for the 935 and the uh, 956 and the 962 and everything else. Ad nauseum. <laughs> um, he was a young upstart engineer and kind of joined the 917 project uh, as it was going on. You know, in 19... 19- 68 and 69 it was it was uh launch of the of the concept 1970 was proof of concept and as you said 1971 was when they were able to harvest the fruit of their labors well part of the reason they were able to do that is because of a young engineer who first started to working on internals of the car and that sort of stuff but then was able to focus on what his true uh, passion and education was and that was aerodynamics and he developed the car uh, to a point where he took what the wire guys had learned about the downforce at the back and took it one step further for 1971 by adding the wing tabs. These days, it was the 917 was uh, 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 the big car. And uh, my first job uh, was doing some, especially for Le Mans in, in, in 1970, to do some gearbox cooling, which was... Uh, Quite a um, complicated system between these all these uh, tubes of the of the chassis to get some efficient cooling because on 
uh, radiator was not uh, favored, and so we had to do it for just with a lot of cool air around the gearbox. And later I started to do some aerodynamic work on the, on the 917. Work on, on the fuel cell, the fuel pickup, and later I started to do some aerodynamic work on the, on the 917. And what kind of aerodynamic work did you do, Norbert? Well, it's, in these days it was always the problem because downforce was discovered, let's say. <laughs> Even at Porsche it was discovered because they did a test in, in, at the end of 69 at, in Zeltwerk in, in, in where they saw that the 917 leads quite some downforce. It doesn't work at all. It wasn't stable. And uh, then my job was to, 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 to keep that downforce, what we have, or increase it a little bit. But, and this was always since decades in Porsche, to have a low drag. Because the, the, all the cars before had um, low power, small engines. And at Le Mans, and you're always thinking at Le Mans, uh, with a long straight, you need a high top speed. So you need a very low drag. And this was always the gamble, to, to, to improve the drag, but keep at least the downforce, or improve it, as, which is uh, yeah, not easy, but at least uh, the work was quite successful. At the end, we, we, we got these fins on the, on the, on the car, and uh, when we did that uh, big test in, in Hockenheim to prove the wind tunnel results, and John Weyer in these days had... a. Had uh, wind, his own wind tunnel tests in Myra, I think, and uh, then we compared, I think, three or four different tail sections. Derek Bell was driving, and it turned out in Hockenheim that uh, my tail with the fins and so was uh, by far, I think, by more than five kilometers per hour faster than all the others. So that was uh, a big step forward, and then uh, I started working on the on the on the long tail car, 917 long tail car, which was also a little bit tricky to drive in 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 68 and and in 70. So for 71, we we did a lot of small detail changes. We changed the nose, we changed the front uh, spoiler, we put some. Uh, uh, rounded edges on just it's it, the principal design was the same but when you look in the details when you compare pictures from uh, 70 to 71 lots of small things have changed and this gives us a, a, a nice balance on downforce and the track was also pretty good we didn't hurt too much the track coefficient and the top speed was i think what they measured 380 or something at le mans the historic Racing News Radio Show. So, Joe, after that uh, great year in 1971 with the car with the tab rear deck that uh, Norbert Singer told us about designing, the car kind of became less competitive, but it wasn't the car's fault, was it? It was all about politics and legislation. You know, Jim, it, that sounds unfair to the 917 saying it became less competitive because it didn't really become less competitive. It it was at the very top throughout its career. The reason it was rendered less competitive and a car that they stopped using for world sports cars was purely down to the regs change. And you couldn't effectively use the use the 917. Hence, the, you know, the, the three-litre formula, the open-top sports cars. Born was the, you know, the Ferrari 312PBs, which were effectively a Formula One car with, a, you know, a slightly widened monocoque to allow... a, a 
a passenger seat, loosest of terms. But underneath the running gear and the engine was all Formula One running gear and engine. And it was a very, you know, and, and so, I, you know what, Jim, I, tr- I find it hard to say the 917 was was ever not competitive. Um, the, the carpet, the rug was pulled from under its feet, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to put it. And in fact, that's how the 917 kind of came into existence, because it was uh, Porsche's answer to a, to a rule change in, in 1968. You can kind of follow that cycle in sports car racing for literally decades, even up to the very present. This cycle of sports car racing regulations, of of rendering cars uh, less competitive, not competitive, less eligible, not even eligible at all. And, it, you know, it was very much part of the 917 history. However, what that did, Jim, was kind of give it a new life in your part of the world in the United States, because that opened up the the use of the car in Can-Am and mod- heavily modified from the, the coupe versions to the open top Can-Am versions. Oh, exactly. That was the birth of the of the 917.10 and then the 917.30. That decision to move to America opened uh, some unbelievable doors for Porsche. It also created one of the biggest innovations and that was the decision to for the first time ever do a turbocharged road racing motor and valentine schaefer the man who was hans metzger's number one uh, lieutenant and a man who was responsible for much of the engine development that porsche was able to do in the 60s and 70s said that the turbocharging came only after you're not going to believe this, Joe. The 16-cylinder engine they invented wasn't more wasn't powerful enough. And so, and they uh, decided in this time we will go to Canem, yeah, and uh, making America is the best business for Porsche in this time, and uh, we have to make a series there where we will win. And so then we uh, thought before we can run with a with a uh, normal. Uh, type of uh, 917 and so we said to win is not enough we have to have uh, another one we have to make a bigger engine a big engine so we said okay we'll try to make a 16 cylinder and uh, Mr. Pierre was in this time he said he will nobody had a good 16 cylinders made in the world and he will do it yeah and so we started to make the 16 cylinder and then uh, we uh, tested it, and I thought, okay, that's not enough. Uh, it, we was by 700, I can't remember, it was 740 or 750 horsepower, but it was not enough. Yeah? And uh, so uh, we decided then uh, the top management and Porsche, Ferry Porsche too, we will have, uh, we make with the turbo in, in the United States where we run with turbo engine. Good heavens, Paul. Can you imagine a 16-cylinder engine not having <laughs> enough power? You of the man of the Rolls-Royce and, and the Spitfire and 16 cylinders not having enough power? Good heavens. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? I I love the... I mean, it's, it's a very Germanic view, which which says... <laughs> Yeah, okay, fine. This has not got enough power. 
we need to do something about it. And and uh, yeah, I love that. Love that that, that comment. It absolutely great. Absolutely great. The other thing too, Paul, is nobody had done any sort of turbocharging of a race car. They had it for trucks. They had it for cars. Um, they had done it for oval racing in the United States. Okay. But the difference is road racing versus oval racing. Oval racing, once you get up into top gear, you're pretty much, you know, a place like Indianapolis, especially you're, you're not on and off the throttle that much, but in road racing, you know, it's gear change up on the throttle for 200 yards, gear change down back on the throttle. Hmm. Yeah, that was it was brand new territory. I can't imagine that. Well, it's funny that you should you should say about the Rolls Royce Merlin engine in the in Spitfire because I I actually went to a, a talk once about engines, which which was ninety nine percent straight over the top of my head because I I am I am not in the least bit technical. But somebody asked a question of the guy who was talking and said, you know, why wouldn't you put a Merlin engine in a racing car? And it was exactly that. He said that the Merlin was designed to deliver at a particular rev range and that it didn't accelerate and that it didn't decelerate because it just did what it did. And you went up there and you you flew at a given a given speed and that's what you did. And that for a Spitfire or a Hurricane, it was all about maneuver maneuverability, not acceleration. And that yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? That with uh, with a turbo, certainly those early day turbos where you you jumped on the on the throttle pedal and literally seconds later the power came in. Oh yeah, and it was and it was unbelievable amounts of of power, and that's one of the things that Metzger and Valentin Schaefer struggled with because they couldn't control the amount of, of, of boost. And Schaefer tells wonderful stories of in the early days of blowing mercury all over the dyno because they were using the mercury to, to measure the boost and it would just shoot it all over the, all over the dyno. And uh, Quicksilver, as they, as they called it, mercury is what we call it nowadays. And yeah. those, you, you know, I just, the, the new cutting edge territory that they were, that they were uh, uh, in during this time just, was uh mind-blowing now the drivers the drivers hated the turbos uh for all the reasons that we've talked about and believe it or not how they were able to fix the uh, again the, the the history of gulf racing uh and it's inner how it is intertwined with porsche is amazing because it was on a tour of the gulf facility that valentin schaefer was able to discover the fix that they didn't know about for the turbocharger. Because the power was uh, there very, very early in the development. But the pickup of the, of the power, the turbo lag actually, due to, to make it uh, as, as small as possible, this was the main work for, let's say, half a year on, on that car. And, uh, uh, okay, Joseph said, okay, this turbo lag is uh, very, very big, what, whatever, what does it mean? 
uh, uh, Kausen was running the car, and actually at the end he had the same arguments. And when Mark Donohue came in, he also said, "Okay, it's fine, but the turbo lag is too big, and we had to work on that." And uh, so at the end, we was a development on the engine, on the wastegate, on these uh, special valves on top, on and uh, all these ignition and uh, fuel injection things. It's quite a hard work, and I think the engine guys would have will have told tell you a lot about this. You cannot believe that we build the engine together, with lower lower compression and all that. What we had to do, we know that what we have nearly to do. Then uh, we we just in when we put first time just uh, the throttle open, all the our measurements was going the. the Quicksilver, mm, what's that in English? Mercury. Mercury, yes. <laughs> yeah. It was over there, the uh, uh, glass, uh, you, you, uh, who's it, come over on, on our head. Yeah. That, that boost goes up, and we didn't know what can we do. We thought, okay, uh, maybe we have to, to, to boost uh, the, the air out on top side, you know, the, in the intake. Then we did it. Then we said that cannot be the right way. Uh, we have to to make under exhaust uh, out. Then we made holes in. We we, we drilled uh, 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 holes in the in the in the muffler, you know. Then we f- came a little bit down. Then uh, uh, we could measure what what's what's uh, doing. Is it two two uh, uh, atmospheres or the five or we didn't know it comes up and and so we tested uh, the way and we found ah uh, we had to make anything to make uh, we made uh, throttles and the exhaust and all uh, unbelievable every time and I was on a test in um, in um, in Sebring and then uh, the president of the Gulf. Uh, took me uh, with his uh, plane to Pittsburgh, yeah, yeah, Pittsburgh. And so I was a day uh, or two, I was in Pittsburgh, and then uh, uh, the chief of the of the whole uh, brought me to show me his his uh, dinos and all what he, they had for testing. And I saw, oh, there is an Indian engine uh, um, of Nausea, yeah? And I said, what's that here? Then they said, ah, oh, that's a wastegate. They said, a wastegate. I saw it comes from the exhaust. They can I have this? Uh, then he said, no problem. I said, you can take one. But it was so heavy. I had it in my hand. Luggage uh, uh, brought it uh, to Germany. And then we put this thing on. And I made it by myself. I made a sketch and all. And uh, But on the top side, I used uh, the, uh, the same what they had. And then we had no problem, no problem anymore. We could run the engine, so how we did like it. Paul, can you imagine bringing a wastegate in your in your luggage? <laughs> Not <laughs> these days. That's an amazing story. I mean, I, imagine nowadays going through uh, TSA and customs. Is this a wastegate that I have? It's for a What? What are you talking about? Yeah, you'd be, you'd be up against the wall with your yes, with your hands exactly. above your head, wouldn't you? Uh, no well, doubt. I, I, I tell you that wastegate solved a lot of the problems and opened the door for the nine seventeen ten and nine seventeen thirties to be dominant cars.
which leads us on to uh, to the whole Can-Am story of, of what these cars were about, because the 917 by then was an old racing car and that it was it was beginning. But Porsche had, it's interesting, they had seen a future for the 917 back in 1969 when they first introduced the 917 PA, which stood for Porsche Audi, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. It was imported by uh, uh, Vasek Pollock, who was the uh, leading Porsche importer in the United States. He was based out in the West Coast, and he ran the PA, and it was uh, he and actually uh, Joe Siffert, uh, and he used Siffert sometimes. Siffert came over on his own. It was all about money, and it was all about marketing, Paul, because the, the folks at Porsche realized that the Can-Am had become hugely popular in the United States. And if they could go and compete and win, it would help them sell more Porsches in the United States. And it really did work as that car uh, dominated. And as we've talked about in, in our Can-Am podcast, many people blamed Porsche for, for killing the Can-Am. That's, that's no more true than, than, um, than other thing other myths that that are that are propagated <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. racing history but the car was was very potent and they they created that 917 pa they they then and as you say it's a marketing thing because they created the interseries spider which mm-hmm. which they built for the interseries which was a, a german sports car series and that that's what that's what that was created for. Very popular at the time, and that they built that, um, which was interestingly they they took the two nine one seven PAs that they'd run in the in the US, and they breathed on them slightly, <laughs> and they also um, changed the format of the car that Mike Halewood had crashed at Le Mans in nineteen seventy as well, and they they built three of these 917 inter-series spider cars which uh, which worked very well for them before then that was developed into the 91710 which was again a development of the 917 PA so although we we tend to look at these cars and think of them as being separate in their own right that that 91710 which begat the 91730 um, had started in 1969, which is amazing. Yeah, and everybody everybody just thinks that that there was this appearance of the 917-10 in you know the 70s, and then the 917-30 in 1973 that 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 you know was the the all conquering car and the Penske Sunoco colors and and that sort of stuff. But that car had a had a long history, and as you said, it was. Uh, um, uh, quite successful uh, in many iterations. The 1710 was uh, the inner series car that was the big success, and the 91730 was the car that was so successful in the United States. The inner series program was very interesting. It was dominated by by two guys, um, and and then Vic Elford gave the 917 its final victory in Europe at an inner series race at Hockenheim, and it was an interesting story he told us. A gentleman named uh, Ed Peter. He was then 
I don't know if he was vice president. I don't know if those terms existed by, back then, but he was then the uh, general manager of export sales, you know, or the manager of export sales for Porsche, for Porsche AG in Stuttgart. He was getting a bit upset with the fact that these two were just sharing all the money. Nobody else was getting a look in or nobody else had a car to go after them. And uh, he called me and said, oh, first of all, the car was there. It was, the, it was actually a 917-10 stroke 30. It was the one that Weissach had been using to evaluate the 917-10 and then 30, which came to America for Can-Am. And uh, so Ed Peter went to the management and they said, look, you know, this, this car is lying around doing nothing. Can we borrow it for Hockenheim? and get me to drive it. And they said, yeah, okay, why not? One, one proviso, you must get Rick to come here to Weissach on Friday morning early before we take off for um, Hockenheim because he'd never driven um, this sort of car, basically. He's never driven a car with this power, never driven the turbo, which of course I hadn't. And so I turned up there, I had a, did about uh, half an hour running around the big Can-Am layout at Weissach at six o'clock in the morning. Well, I'm not usually at my best anyway, uh, but it was fine and they were happy. So they loaded it up and off we went to Hockenheim. And then Norbert Singer was running my car, which was a huge advantage for me because he and I got on very well together. We trusted each other. And uh, um, I was on pole position, which sort of upset the apple cart as far as Kinnan and the Cowson were concerned. And then with Norbert Singer, before the race, you know, American type, type rolling starts had just started in Europe at that point. And uh, so I went to Norbert and I said, you know, Norbert, uh, w with the turbo, if you wait for the green flag and then you put your foot on it, you sit there for what seems forever before anything happens. Uh, can I just come up to the line with my foot flat on the floor on the throttle and hold it back on the brake so I keep uh, turbo boost up all the time? And he said, well, you can try, but the others have tried it and they, they can't do it. The car gets sideways or something like that. But he said, if you want to try, go ahead. I said, you know, I wanted, I had to ask because I didn't know if there were any technical reasons to not do it. And he said, no, 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 give it, give it a go. So I came up on pole position and I waited. And as soon as the green flag came down, I just simply took my foot off the brake. And I was in third gear and leading by about 100 yards when I got to the first corner. All that success on the racetrack for the 917.10 and the 917.30, Paul, was absolutely fantastic but the big headline grabber in the era was the 917.30 that Penske and Mark Donahue used in the Cam 2 livery to go to Talladega Alabama on the big 2.6 mile super speedway and set what was then the closed course speed record but it wasn't a flawless run uh, as we found out from Valentin Schaefer they needed a little help from Germany. Two times they, they run and two times their engine blowed. And then he called me, or was it a telex? I, it, was, it was a telex, yeah. What can we do? And then I said, okay, uh, we need, we need uh, 
air cooling for for the, for the, the air cooler, yeah, intercooler. Right. Yeah, we need it, and then you should not use the five point two liter. Then so we are crazy. We need the uh, 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 we needed the power. Then said so you should know uh, uh, take the five liter. Five liter is much better in in, in cooling in. Uh, Stronger, but the horsepower was a little bit more. But you have changed all the time the throttle. Then, then was okay the 5.2 liter. But when you go full, full for for three laps, we had to go. Yeah, that's not possible. And she said, okay, send me and, and I send in my engine uh, 12. Uh, uh, and so he used it and and I was I was there and uh, and we run it and we run the record. It was higher as we. We talked, and we had to make another one. It was uh, it was no problem. It was running, and the engine was perfect. And I got a, 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 a from Penske. Then you was right, and uh, thank you for all and so. <laughs> so Joe Bradley, uh, close course speed record, World Endurance Championships, Le Mans. It seems that the 917 was able to conquer most anything that the Porsche engineers set their mind to. And lucky for us, we still get to see them today through historic racing. And thank you for that, Jim. We're far too young to remember the 917 in period, but it doesn't stop us witnessing what we've witnessed in historic racing. And like so many great classic cars, their lifespan continues in current times in historic racing. And you and I were really lucky uh, to be able to catch up with Kevin Jeanette. Now there is, who's Kevin Jeanette, some people might ask. Kevin Jeanette is the man who knows literally everything about Porsche 917s. Why? Because he restores Porsche 917s. He sources Porsche 917s. He can tell you what isn't a Porsche 917, what's <laughs> purporting to be a 917, but actually isn't a 917. And as ever, Kevin has such a, a, a bank of anecdotes and tales that really, some of which we can't even tell. Um, but the story <laughs> you can tell, Jim, and it's great to hear, is his story about that famed, the 1970 Le Mans winner. I found that car. What happened was a chassis we won't mention at Porsche was converted into a lookalike car, which was nicknamed the Taxi or taxi cab, because when dignitary drivers or people that could drive a car that were fans or, or needed customers to Porsche, if they were testing the car somewhere, they would let people go for a ride in it, hence the taxi cab. And it represented the win at Le Mans, which is still today the biggest win for Porsche at Le Mans, because it's the first overall win, okay, with the mighty almighty 917. So a million people got to take, go for a ride or even drive the taxi cab. People just thought it was the real car. A little misleading, but Porsche didn't do that with malice. They're the guys who built it. They can do what they want. It was not important when they painted the car like the Le Mans winner, okay? So now they're becoming a little more valuable. Now all of a sudden, someone discovers that they don't have the car anymore, the real car. It was sold. Oops. It was sold, at least sold to Vasek Polak. 
the Porsche, the first American racer, the backed by factory, the guy who took care of all the factory cars in Cali, California. It went there, okay? Wow, pretty cool. Well, he bought that car and he bought all kinds of other cars from Porsche, including a martini car too, a martini car that won Sebring, which is also pretty cool. Uh, you name it. Mr. Pollock got it all because he was family friends and Porsche evidently thought he was dumb enough to pay money for these old beat-up race cars. Let him have them. Might be a different thought process today, but in the middle 70s, get it out of here. No room to keep storing all these beat-up race cars. Again, you think that wasn't a smart move by Porsche, but everybody was doing it. All the manufacturers were, get rid of it. Who cares? We'll win next year. We'll win the year after. So there was a big mix-up with Polak because Polak had someone that wanted to buy one of the cars. And I bought two of them in the 80s, so he was selling cars to make money. That was his business. So as it ends up, there was a little serial number switch in Hermosa Beach, California. You can do the math on that one, okay? There was a paint job not painted like a martini or a Salzburg car. So what happened was somebody from another country of Asian descent wanted a Gulf 917. And the little short guy in California said, we can paint them any color you want. I want a golf car, the guy says. So they take an old Porsche Salzburg car, which became martini cars. Okay, so when Porsche became the backer of the 917 in 71, it was Porsche AG in Stuttgart, not the Austrian branch of it, which was undoubtedly in the same location, but a different group of people. Maybe not all of them, okay? So now as it ends up, there's now a golf car living in another country with a different serial number on it. And even at the point that car was sold, who cared? Well, there were a few people that cared but couldn't do anything about it. Whether they knew about it and can prove it was a whole other story. So as it ends up, someone asked me about a 917. And I kind of knew something happened because I'm from there. Pollock had sold me two 917s. Pollock, who's that? Okay, not a Pollock, Mr. Pollock, okay. Sold me two 917s and they had their stories too, all good. So I kind of had an in there. I bought lots of parts from him. Mr. Pollock liked me. He would give me things every time we'd buy a car from him. And it was a happy relationship. Nobody ever lied to anybody, okay? So all of a sudden now, Mr. Pollock passes away. There's a guy that has a Golf 917 somewhere, and someone's asking me, hey, uh, what cars did Mr. Pollock actually have? And he had four or five of them. So I started doing the process of elimination with some help of friends who also knew Mr. Pollock. And I came to the conclusion the only real way to find out what car was which was to scrape the paint off it because nobody ever repainted these cars. They were always another coat of lacquer, not enamel. And why? 
because Porsche and John Wire figured out lacquer-based paint was lighter than enamel. And we were all thinking about how to get the car to the victory circle, the winner's circle, the big trophy, okay? And having a car be overweight wasn't the way to do it. And who cared what the damn car looked like on the track? Nobody did. So, somebody scraped the paint for me. Again, I'm trying not to mention names because until my book comes out and I have permission, I'll just keep this to a minimum because I'm telling you guys big news but only little news. And when they scraped the paint off this one car, and I won't tell you the color that it was, there was red paint underneath it. There was red paint underneath it. I don't think you should care what the top coat is when I say there was red paint underneath it. That car was moved into another color of a car that went to an Asian country. So now it's back to timing. You have to refigure the timing, I told you, knowing that I'm not giving you dates and times when this happened. So when we then figured out what color car it was, I figured out where this Porsche Salzburg Le Mans car was. And the great part of it is, the other car ended up being the 12-hour Sebring car, which didn't have a Salzburg paint job on it at the time, but it had Porsche Salzburg color underneath it. So you can see how this can get really confusing. Now times is, Porsche kept records. They have records of, of everything that left them. Mr. Pollock is dead, and he remembered everything until he passed away. But there's a few of us that figured it out before it all started to happen and really can tell the story of which I will tell and I have photographs and I have really good guys that especially you Joe Bradley as English racers and you've already talked about one of them today who was the guy that went and reinstalled serial numbers he didn't do it personally but he witnessed it so everybody would know that that's what happened and how the cars end up where they are today correctly. The serial numbers have been retransferred and anybody that knows anything who, who can do trial and error can see it's the only way that can happen because the original paints were still left under the cars when they were repainted the right color. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Well, that's it for the Historic Racing News Insight Special. This month, looking at the Porsche 917 and all those behind-the-scenes stories, which I hope you found interesting because there are thousands of stories about all sorts of racing cars, but nonetheless, it's the ones that you haven't heard before, which are the great ones. I would like to thank our special guests on this show, Valentin Schaefer, Brian Redman, Kevin Jeanette, Hans Metzger, Norbert Singer, um, and a very special thank you to Vic Helford, who recorded his comments before he was taken ill and admitted to hospital. Vic, we wish you a very speedy and a very comprehensive recovery, and our, our thoughts continue to be with you. Um, my thanks to Jim Roller and Joe Bradley, who will again join me for our first of the month Historic Racing News radio show uh, on the 7th of July. But I think... Jim, it would be fair to say in, in signing off from this that the 917, I think, probably holds a special place in 
everybody's hearts of a certain age. Without a doubt, Paul, for me, it will always be the Tyrannosaurus Rex of race cars. (laughs) Joe, what will it be to you? I have a very tenuous link, Jim and Paul. Um, My first Le Mans was 1981. It was the year of the Porsche 936, the Jules livery car that we've talked about uh, on occasion. But the tenuous link is this. It was the final Le Mans, if not the final race, actually, contemporary race, that is, for the Porsche 917. To be exact, it was the 917 K81. And it was a Kramer car, the Kramer brothers. They saw through a loophole in the rules that allowed them to run this car. Now, the car is is a closed car. However, it could run in the prototype class if it had a hole in the roof. And quite basically, they cut a (laughs) hole in the roof. It wasn't an open top car. They just so cut it didn't a hole have a gurney the... bump. They just cut a hole. No, they cut a hole in the roof. And the roof, you couldn't get a person out of it, they, they, but the regulations didn't say somebody had to be able to get out of the hole in the roof. It just said it had to have an open roof. And they did. And they ran it at the Le Mans in, 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 Le Mans in 1981. And my only regret is that I, I, I have a vague recollection of this car at the Ford Chicane. Middle of the night, 3, 3 a.m. in the morning, and I just sat there on the barrier, literally on the barrier as well back in those days, feet on the arm core, effectively. And the thing, the cars were coming through. And I distinctly remember this bright yellow car that I, I don't even remember, guys, if, if I knew it was a 917. And I knew, you know, I knew the history of the car. It was my first ever Le Mans. It was like, you know, what's all this 24-hour around-the-clock racing about? But that, that's my tenuous link, guys. I, I was there. I was there. I saw the last 17, uh, the last 917, the line, the 917K81 to give it its full title. When we come back on the 7th of July, we'll be talking about some of the latest books and, uh, and latest releases in, in books, looking at the Thruxton Historic Festival and the latest news from around the world of historic racing as well. We'll um, play the second round of our new game show called Corridors of Power. And this month, the teams will debate and eventually pick the greatest Grand Prix circuits of all time. Ooh. Yeah, and that's going to be frozen in aspic as well. So I don't want anybody saying, oh, well, it's Reams. <laughs> it's, it's, got to be, it's got to be Reams in 1953 or whatever, because we know that, that circuits evolve. So uh, you better, better get your uh, thinking caps on, um, Mrs. Yeah. Bradley and Roller. I won the first one with gold leaf tomatoes. I think this one will be a layup as well. Oh, no. no well, no, it won't. I'll tell you. <laughs> you, did run, you did run home the winner with gold leaf team Lotus, and uh, that you can listen to all of that on the June edition of the Historic Racing News Radio Show, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. Please let us know your thoughts on greatest racing circuit, the greatest Grand Prix racing circuits of all time. Love to uh, to hear from you. You can go to our Facebook page, Historic Racing News, or you can go to Twitter at Hist Racing News and be pleased to hear what your thoughts are about the greatest Formula One circuits of all time. Please let us, uh, let us know. Uh, it's been fascinating to hear all of the stuff about the Porsche 917. This has been a Blue House Studios production for Historic Racing News. My name is Paul Tarsi. As always, 
If you have been, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.